welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Uh, hey, everybody. So good to be back. And uh, I have heard a little bit from Micah and also from Laura. And uh, it sounds like the sabbatical is going beautifully so far. So as one of Micah's dearest friends, I want to thank you for providing this space for him and for his family. Uh, it's significant. It's a big gift. And uh, knowing Micah, he's going to just suck the marrow out of every single piece of it. So thank you for uh, providing him that. Uh, I want to invite Jenna up to read the scriptures. And as I said last week, if you were here uh, at our church, uh, if a male is preaching, we have a female read the scriptures. And if a female is preaching, we have a male read the scriptures. So at least in that way, we can hear uh, the gender full voice of God in both masculine and feminine. So uh, thanks, Jenna. Uh, Stand, if you are able, for the reading of the word. This is a reading from 1 John 5, 1 through 6. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the parent loves the child. By this, we know we love the children of God. We know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For the love of God is this, that we obey his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God conquers the world, and this is the victory that conquers the world, our faith. Who is it that conquers the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with water only, but with the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one that testifies, for the Spirit is the truth. Amen. You can be seated. Thanks, Jenna. Um, And at our church, we say the word of the Lord, and then you say, thanks be to God. So let's do that. Uh, So there's so much packed in here, you all. And uh, I have to be somewhere by 2 o'clock, so we're really going to have to motor to get get through it. Um, uh, And and so this this passage should raise at least 100 questions for you, right? Like, whoever loves the parent loves the child. For some of you, you're like, no, that's absolutely not true. I have not found that to be true in my life. Um, but let's start with the beginning. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So uh, I worked at a camp uh, when I was 21 years old. This was an evangelical Christian camp. And so the kids would come on Sunday afternoon uh, after lunch, and then we would feed them some dinner and do chapel and all the crazy uh, songs, and they would hear a talk, and then they would go back to their cabins. And so we had about 10 kids per cabin. So I was a counselor. And we were trained to do this. Every single Sunday night when the kids would get their first night, we gave them each a little sheet of paper with a question on it. And we gave them uh, a little pencil. Some of you know where I'm going with this, and you're shuddering already. On the little sheet of paper was this question. Now, sometimes these are third graders, sometimes fifth graders, sometimes seventh graders. If you were to die tonight... <laughs> Ha, ha, ha. 
and God asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Third graders. <laughs> so we're going to do some more all play questions. If you weren't here last week, the all play question is designed to hear the voice of the chorus, not just the solo, because we really believe that we can hear the voice of God all around us and deep inside of us if we actually listen to one another. Amen? Uh, so that little question, if you were to die tonight, third grader, uh, nightmares, and God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? What are some assumptions that are being made with that question? Okay, the assumption is that there are some people in and there are some people that are out. Very good. What else? Say it again. <laughs> yes! There's this assumption that there's the possibility that's now entered the mind of a third grader that I just might die tonight. I haven't thought about that my entire life, but now as a nine-year-old, innocence shattered. It could happen. What else? Am I good enough, someone said? Am I, okay, am I good enough? Yes. What else? Yes, we have to defend ourselves to God. That paints a picture of a God that, you know, is sitting up there, certainly a male, and you have to prove why you should get into his turf. It's his, of course. Whew. Any other ones? Yeah. I mean, you never know. You know, that cigarette I had in ninth grade that I was pressured to do it? I mean, that could be it. I mean, that could be the thing that pushes me over the edge. Oh, my gosh. So, um, the, so John wrote this, the Apostle John. And the word for believe, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, um, means, it's the word pisteo, and it means to entrust or to place one's confidence in. So he's saying everyone who places one's confidence in Jesus the Christ has been born of God. Now, climb back into the white sheet of paper. According to the white sheet of paper, what are we supposed to place our confidence in Jesus to do? To get us to heaven. Now, that's not a terrible thing. I mean, let's be honest. Heaven would be a nice place to be, to go. Certainly better than the alternative that we've been taught. But the problem is that that, um, that question has a whole lot of fear behind it, doesn't it? I might die tonight. If I do die and I'm not right with God, I'm going to suffer eternally and consciously in hell. Uh, and if you really want to get the kids to, to pray the prayer, you say, and you'll be separated from your parents for all eternity. And some people said that, I mean, un unbelievably. So, you know, at the end of the week, yeah, we had, I had 10, 10 salvations, you know, 10 prayers. And is that a terrible thing um, to get people to pray to have Jesus forgive them of their sins? Absolutely not. That's so beautiful. But if that's where the story starts for someone, 
that God is really up there waiting for you to screw up, and the only way you cannot screw up is by saying a prayer. And if you do say the prayer, all is good. If you don't say the prayer, all is bad. And to, to kind of think like that is the fundamental foundation of where a lot of us grew up believing the gospel was, the good news. So uh, the problem with that is it's just not what the Bible says the gospel is, which is a small problem. Amen? Okay, so uh, I want to tell you a story about a person who placed his trust in Jesus the Christ to free a country from oppressive and violent actions. I will warn you, this person is not a Christian. Uh, his name is Mahatma Gandhi. Maybe you've heard of him. And uh, maybe you didn't know, you know, he was a lawyer, trained in London, but he lived in South Africa for 20 years. And when he lived in South Africa, he experienced racism for the first time. People treated him differently because of the color of his skin. So he engaged in the civil rights struggle. He was in prison many times. And when he, he was a brilliant person, and as a brilliant person, he was very well read. And the strategy he chose uh, to try to fight the oppression that he saw, he picked the strategy of Jesus found in the Sermon on the Mount because he, he thought that was the most beautiful uh, picture of nonviolent love conquering oppression. And this is what he said about Jesus. I'll just read you a couple quotes from Gandhi, a Hindu. Jesus, a man who was completely innocent, offered himself as a sacrifice for the good of others, including his enemies, and became the ransom of the world. It was a perfect act. Now, if I would have read that on a little uh, white sheet of paper, I would have been like, I think this person's got it. I mean, they're in third grade, and their understanding of theology is a little rudimentary, but, but I think that's a pretty good answer. Jesus, Gandhi said, expressed as no other could the spirit and will of God. It is in this sense that I see him and recognize him as the Son of God. And because of the life of Jesus has significance and the transcendence to which I have alluded, I believe that he belongs not only to Christianity, but to the entire world, to all races and all people. It matters little under what flag, name, or doctrine they may work, profess a faith, or worship in a God inherited from their ancestors. He's essentially saying Jesus is bigger than Christianity. <laughs> I remember this was a long time ago. I said at this church that I had just, it's it, it amazing the arrogance that I had. Um, but I remember saying this thing as a brand new pastor that I believe Jesus was the only way to God, but there was many, many, many ways to Jesus. And there were some people that really didn't like that particular statement. But now, about 12 years later, I would stand by that. That Jesus is bigger than a sinner's prayer or than a set of doctrines that you would check the boxes off. And that might be on like the right side, you know, the right side of the continuum. But Jesus is also bigger than the boxes that you would check off on the progressive side. Must not vote for a certain person. 
must include, you know, Jesus transcends all of that. So Gandhi had a picture of Christ with the caption, he is our peace, hung in his room. And when India became independent in 1947, you know, it was split into India and Pakistan. And when a country gets split like that, you have to draw the line somewhere. And there were thousands of families who had to be relocated. And that um, relocation process resulted in a lot of violence between Hindus and Muslims. And a lot of people were killed. And so uh, at that time, a Hindu asked Gandhi, remember Gandhi was, he was also a Hindu. He said, what should I do? My only son was killed by a Muslim. Now climb into that. Climb into the despair, the rage, the anger, the injustice. Gandhi's response, forgive. Adopt a Muslim child as your own. His parents may have been killed by Hindus. Now, here's an all-play question. Who can say that? to someone who's just lost their child? Someone with authority. And not the kind of authority where you get elected. The kind of authority that is born out of deep struggle. The kind of authority that led Gandhi to go, on, to, go to Calcutta and proclaim that he was going to be on a fast that would end in his death if the violence didn't stop. And because people revered him so much, um, his fast ended the violence. And Hindus and Muslims were seen embracing each other, saying, we are brothers. And this is because a Hindu named Mohandas Gandhi had the courage to believe that Jesus the Christ could end oppression in his time. Now that breaks open a lot of theological boxes, I realize that, but that's what it means to trust Jesus. Is that making sense? Like that's what it means to place your trust in Jesus the Christ. So uh, in 1 John 5, 5, we read really um, about what it is that Gandhi did, but we read, who is it that conquers the whole world? Who is it that conquers the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So here's an all-play question. What do you think John is talking about when he says, who is it that conquers the world? What does it mean to conquer the world? To endure the world. To endure the world. Wow, I love that. Wish we could have coffee for four more hours and talk about that because that's really... I think that's really good and true. What else? What does it mean to conquer the world? What's the world? Start there. Okay, the world, not the kingdom of God, right? Anyone else care to add? But yes, totally. The struggle of all of our lives. Is that what you said? The struggle all around us, yes. Now, it might be easy to translate that as, and none of us would ever say this out loud, but as non-Christians. But certainly that's not what is meant, because we read elsewhere that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, it's not against people, it's against powers, principalities. So it is against the struggle that we see. And the world is, like, whenever you read in the epistles or the gospels, the world, right? 
uh, it really refers to the oppressive system that is doing the opposite from what Jesus said he was going to do when he came to preach in the synagogue on that first day after he started doing public ministry and he went back to his hometown and he unrolled the scroll and he read from Isaiah 61 and he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's just reading the scroll for he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the oppressed, to give sight to the blind and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, roll up the scroll, hand it back to the, to the person. And like, I want to write a book about that person like that person who was the reader that day and who gave Jesus the scroll and then who got the scroll back, like what was going through his mind in that moment? Or, you know, anyway, that's an entirely different everything. But Jesus handed the scroll to the attendant, sat down and said, uh, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. To which the response was, isn't that Joseph's son? <laughs> I love that. And he, wasn't he caught back behind the synagogue smoking that, that, that day in, fifth, in, in ninth grade? Um, and then, and then they, they tried to kill him right there. What's fascinating that you might miss is that if you read Isaiah 61, you read the whole thing, you go, yep, Jesus said that, Jesus said that, Jesus said that, Jesus said that. But then when you see where Jesus stopped to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, full stop, unroll, roll back up, give it back to the attendant, the very next verse is, and the day of vengeance of our God. And he left it out, which you're not allowed to do, P.S. <laughs> Jesus is vamping on the scriptures. And he's saying, that's what I've come to do. But the vengeance thing, not the way I've come to do it. Whoa. How do you conquer the world, according to Jesus? How do you conquer the system? You know the answer here. How do you conquer the system, according to Jesus? Self-sacrificial love. And there is a, that's such a, difficult challenge because on the one hand, if you're not taking it seriously enough, it's just this self-flagellation, codependent, anyone can walk all over me and it doesn't even matter, and, but that I'm just doing the will of God because I love Jesus and I have no boundaries and praise God, keep it coming. <laughs> right? So like self-sacrificial love from a person like Gandhi who had authority, he actually knew how to wield that and when to wield it. And he had a deep sense of inner authority that allowed him, just like Martin Luther King did, and I think when you, if, if we could have the like, privilege of being with Jesus like now as an actual human being, I think we would be in awe of like, he would have a kind of childlike joy and humor alongside a kind of ability to mic drop a room in a second. I heard a story um, from this person who was, uh, and, and I, I believe that this 
story had to have been true because this guy was in these kind of environments. But Mother Teresa, apparently, when she was alive, she met with one of the presidents of the United States, and he, he wanted to meet with her. And she was, you know, so she agreed, and she was standing behind, she was in this little room, and when he came into the room and saw her, he fell down on his face and started weeping at this little four foot nine uh, woman who was full of authority. How do you conquer the world? I think it really is through love, but that word is so overused now. We love donuts because Friday was donut day, and I do love donuts. I had another one this morning at Mojo, so whew. Uh, But love is the most powerful force in the universe because it's the only thing that can drive out fear, the only thing that is more powerful than death. And when you realize that the life that you hold and the sacrifices that you make have the kind of power to reroute history and that flows into you from the word, which is Jesus, um, then over time you develop an authority which allows you to stand in those places. Um, So how do you love someone, all play question, when you think that they're doing something wrong? Say it again. Look beyond the faults and seek the need. Brilliant. Love it. Anyone else? Remove yourself from the equation. Like, yes. Again, four-hour coffee coming up. Um, Maybe 10 or 12 years ago, I met with this woman. She wanted to meet with me. I I was one of the pastors at the church that she went to. And she said, Steve, I have a big problem because um, one of my friends a couple years ago told me she was gay, and now she's getting married, and she invited me to the wedding. And what am I supposed to do? You know? And so um, as a pastor, I've learned to ask this question. Tell me more. <laughs> Tell me more. She goes, well, I really love her. I'm like, clearly, that's, I mean, that's obvious. But she also said, but I don't, if I go to the wedding, I'll be saying that I condone this, this marriage and, and I just can't, like I, I can't get there. And so I said, tell me more. She goes, well, the Bible clearly teaches that it's wrong. And so I said, tell me more. And I did not try to correct any theology I simply tried to give her a way to see that there was an option standing in front of her that she hadn't yet considered. So option one for her was go to the wedding but completely deny any beliefs that she had. Option two was don't go to the wedding and destroy the friendship. And when, P.S., when you're faced with only two options, you're going to have a hard time picking a good one. (laughs) You should always look for a third. So the third option that I tried to offer her is um, to try to find a way to love her, period. What would love look like right now in a way that 
Because I asked her, did, did she ask you whether you condone it? No. Okay. So that's off the table. You don't have to worry about condoning it or not condoning it because she hasn't asked you to do it. Isn't that great that that's off the table? Like the, the Mac wheel of the spinning, the, the pinwheel of death was spinning, you know? Um, and I think that's a way to love people that when you disagree is, again, you, you know, like if you're in a conversation, one of those uncomfortable ones where someone is telling you exactly how the world works in every single way, and you don't agree with that point of view, I've learned to just kind of smile and say, I don't, I don't see it that way. But not to confront, you know, not to, what do you mean by that? Just to say, you know, I don't, I don't see it that way. But that's okay. Now that comment typically leads to other, <laughs> it's usually not like, oh man, that's so great. Um, <laughs> but that's a way I can hang on to some integrity, um, but also um, not have to, you know, go there um, in a way that wouldn't be helpful. Jesus said this, um, that my commandment is this, that you love one another as I have loved you. And no one has greater love than this than to lay down your life for your friends. And I think maybe for some of us that might be literal, but for most of us, we'll have to lay something down for our friends. Uh, and it might be being right. It might be, you know, having to lay down off of you're one of these compulsive need meters, you know, need meet, like you meet there, you have to meet someone's need. Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> you might have to lay that down, which is excruciating, isn't it? Just letting someone be in need for a little while. You know, it's not always the right thing to rush in and meet a need. Jesus showed that over and over again. There's people that want to meet with you. Let's go to the next town. Like, that's what he actually said. <laughs> and then they actually did. And the disciples were like, sorry, I, we, we're going, I guess. You know? And then that raises all kinds of questions, of course. But then when the Bible does that, and you feel the angst of that, like, wait a minute. The Bible's inviting you to say, wait a minute. When there's a contradiction in there or when something's missing, it's not, that, that's, that's, that's the Bible's way of saying, Go there. This is what you need to talk about. When you get rattled, when something doesn't make sense, go there. That's why it's there. That's why it's in there like that. Have you ever thought about that? The contradictions are there to lead you into great conversations that you otherwise wouldn't have. How boring would it be if it were just completely clear on everything? <laughs> totally clear. Got it. Thank God no one thinks that about the Bible, that it's totally clear on everything. <laughs> that was a cheap shot. I apologize for that. <laughs> Woo! Okay. Um, last thing. 1 John 5, 6. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with water only, but with water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one that testifies, for the Spirit is the truth. So that should raise questions like, what's the water? What's the blood? Maybe it's baptism. Maybe it's the resurrection. Maybe it's crucifixion. Uh, in the crucifixion, you know, his, the sword pierces his side and outflows water and blood. 
And that's interesting, you know, like, you're like, wow, what, what an interesting detail, you know, to put in there. Like, why would, why would we need to know that detail? What's the writer trying to say other than like, wow, that's so gross or weird or like, is that normal or not? The writer's trying to say that in the ancient world, dualism was such a hot uh, topic and it, it, was, it, it, it was brought over from Plato, who lived about 350 BC, the idea that spirit is good and eternal and matter, bodies, the earth, is bad and temporal. So the idea that Jesus of Nazareth could be both spirit, which is good, and matter, which is bad, was kind of an unthinkable spinning death wheel. We can't go there because if, if Jesus is God, we all know God is good, and therefore God can't be matter, which is bad. Like, Bob, God can't have a body, which is bad. So all these theories got developed. Like, Okay, seriously, these are theories that, that like, people believed in and fought over. One theory was Jesus was fully divine, but only appeared to be human. Another theory was Jesus had a human body, but was controlled by a divine mind, right? So then every time Jesus said, like, ask a question, you know, he already knew it. You know, like when, like when you read, you know, Jesus, was, Jesus wept, he was faking, but man, he was a good actor. He really, he was, when he was filled, filled with compassion, do you know how much energy it takes to be filled with compassion when you knew what was going to happen? So it took five centuries to figure out, no, Jesus is fully divine and fully human, and those two things are united into one nature. And that's what enables us to believe that the incarnation, death, and resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ is actually effective as something that makes us righteous because the dualism was broken once and for all. So when you look at the pattern of Jesus, the container that contains all that is human and all that is divine in one united nature, moving forward into this place that we're at right now in human history when there's so much division and so much dualism, and so much in and out, even between Christians, we look at the person of Christ and we say, wait a minute, from the very beginning, he modeled this unified way that two seemingly completely different inconsistent things that could never be united in one body could be united in one body. That's Jesus the Christ, and the church is the body of Christ. Is that ever, like, like that's a literal thing. Like, we are actually the body of Christ in the world. And we're supposed to look like the non-dual Jesus of Nazareth. In which there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. And then in 2018, you could add a bunch of other categories to that, couldn't you? So our work in the world... Right now, 2018, is to place our trust in Jesus the Christ to be the uniting force in the world that breaks down walls and knocks down oppression so that the church can be the unified picture of humanity. Amen? That's what John is trying to say here. And that is the mission of the church in the 21st century.
to go toward the picture of Jesus the Christ that is unifying humanity, reconciling humanity, removing oppression in categories. And to me, there's a lot of reasons why Christianity bugs me right now. But that one, that picture, that one, I can, I can get behind that one. With flaws, <laughs> I mean my flaws, and with two steps forward, three steps back. But I want to be on that mission. You can find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awaken Community or on Twitter at Awaken Community. See you next time.